0: Welcome
1: to Bob Into Buildings. And for the second in this new series, I'm joined by Charles Gard. And we are looking at the panoramic view of Douglas Bay. We started at the south end and I asked Charles, what was here previously? Well, we're standing right at the southern end of the prom, just
0: uh, a short distance from the sea terminal, on reclaimed land. If you look at this amazing photograph of Douglas Promenade or Douglas Front, taken in 1860, there is nothing here except... Strand Street, or Sand Street. That was the front of the bay. Now, if you walk down Strand Street today, all the buildings on the seaside, such as Clinton's or WH Smith or Boots, the buildings that stood where they were had their backs down onto the beach. And if you went down what is now Regent Street or Granville Street, you came to the shore. That's all that was here. They weren't protected. They got flooded on the easterly gales. And what's more, at that time there was no Victoria Pier. So the boats coming in could not get into the harbour at low tide. So the paddle steamers or uh, sailing ships you'd come over from anchored in the bay, maybe in the day, maybe at night, whenever the tide was low, and the infamous... Douglas boatmen rowed out and the passengers and their luggage were decanted into these rowing boats and there's so many letters in the newspapers of the time that halfway through the journey the boatmen would say right I've just doubled the fee and if you don't pay your luggage is going overboard and people were totally compromised and then they would dump them right here on the beach one lady described, perhaps rather romantically, that she was carried through the tide by a big bronzed blue-eyed sailor. But nevertheless, she and her luggage dumped on the beach. You would then walk up to the sands uh, into Strand Street to, to, to find your way. Well, obviously, as tourism was massively increasing for all sorts of reasons in the UK, the development of railways, the Bank Holidays Act, all this meant that we were getting more and more tourists. And Governor Locke saw that something had to be done to accommodate them. So he did this amazing scheme, he knocked all the old houses down at the south end here and drove through Victoria Street that came to the new Victoria Pier and then they started this amazing scheme to infill with tens of thousands of tonnes of, of rubble, uh, you can hear some of it there, um, and actually reclaimed the land that we're now standing on and then sold off the plots to build these boarding houses.
1: All of a sudden, because actually if you go around the back of, is it, W.H. Smith, you can see remnants of the old seawall.
0: Yes, that like tiny that tiny section, bit of, isn't it? Uh, yeah. of a lip, that was not a long seawall, that was just one house. If you look at the photograph, that is actually there in 1860. So it dates from well before that. Whoever had that little house then, with his back garden, he, he put this lip. So the sea, when it hit came up
1: and bounced off. That was just... And it still remains there. If we start looking at the very far end of the building, we we are looking at concrete, unfortunately, which will come into our conversations as Mm. we walk up the prom. The architects tried, but I think they missed.
0: Yeah, well, this is a difficult one. You're talking about the AXA Equity and Law Building, which is glass and cement, which replaced the venerable Villiers, which... um, you know, served for ooh, well over 100 years. Um, it was never finished, the project was never finished. We've got this awful gap here with these blackboards. Um, it, it was not the great success it was intended to be. They tried. They tried, yeah, they tried. Mm. But
1: the good thing I lo- <laughs> love coming down this section of road at night is the Tower Insurance Building because the illuminations of that building are glorious. Yes, well, that um, used to be Yates'
0: Wine Lodge, of course and um, Mr and Mrs Yates retired to the Isle of Man he was educated at King Williams College Yates' wine lodge all over the north of England that was a hard drinking bar or several bars and lots of people coming over on a day trip were drinking on the boat they staggered off the boat into there spent the day drinking and went back having had a great day trip on the Isle of Man
1: (laughs) Sounds similar to us going over to Fleetwood (laughs) Exactly, yes (laughs) As we move away from those buildings then we're coming to the town square, which is hidden right at the back of these blackboards that you mentioned. It's a shame that we can't sort out that part of Douglas.
0: Ah, but this is modern. This this was never a town square. It was never intended to be. That was built all over uh, in the uh, Victorian times and so on. That's just empty because it's cleared and people have been promising us a town square for years. Um, It's very sad. But, you know, once you've given planning permission for a building like this... There's no way the committee can enforce the completion of the building. And as you see, they only got one section of it done. It was to go all the way along yeah. to Regent Street and round the corner. It was to be a glorious thing. It just never happened.
1: Moving along as we look along, we are now looking at a traditional prom. Admiral House in the stretch, Claremont Hotel and things like this. I suppose we ought to be pleased that some modern hotel groups are taking the risk. Yes, I mean, these are,
0: let's be honest, fabulous Victorian buildings. I think this façade of terraces right down towards the Sefton is probably one of the finest sweeps of Victorian border houses anywhere in the British Isles. And a special committee was formed in the 1870s to ensure that there was a uniformity of design, so there was no peculiarities in there, no quirkiness. They all are the same height, the same width, but they have slightly different decorations. But nevertheless, it created this amazing uniformity, which now is its strength. They were put up within three or four years, local businessmen took mortgages, Uh, developers from England, you know, industrialists who had made enormous amounts of money with the Industrial Revolution in England, wanted to invest their money. They came over and they took the risk of building these. And some very famous names, uh, local people and architects were involved. They were utilitarian. They may have 15 or 20 rooms in them, may have had about 50 boarding house uh, residents in them, and the great thing about them is their decoration, because we have no... Uh, or very little clay on the Isle of Man so bricks are fairly rare we don't have Portland stone or great supplies of granite so they're not decorated stone they are built of slate, quarried locally and then rendered in cement and then decorated in the most wonderful way look at the top we've got this great towering mansard here and all sorts of finials and urns and all the decorative string courses all the windows have got wonderful tops to them Uh, and they've all been painted in uh, pastel colours. There was actually a scheme to make sure that you got your colour approved by the corporation to make sure there were no glaring uh, bright greens or black or anything like that.
1: Chimney pots to the
0: front. Chimney pots to the front. Now, well, astonishingly, all these boarding house rooms had a fireplace in them. That's right, yeah. I mean, it's astonishing. Uh, Goodness knows what would happen if any visitor was allowed to light a fire up there in the hydro, which my parents owned and I lived in for many years. It always astonished me that, that, that that was the case. But uh, a guest could, in fact, pay for coal to be brought up to the room and to light a fire. But in the summer, that wasn't necessary, and of course they were closed in the winter. But it did offer ventilation around the buildings, which was very useful.
1: People have kept them up. As I said, shall we keep wandering up the prom? Um, The Sleepwell Group that I mentioned have invested in the prom with... Charterhouse and further up the old Rutland Hotel. We ought to be pleased. You were mentioning about industrialists from North of England investing over here. I think they were more interested. They were more interested in the people who were working in their factories having their summer holidays. Well, they possibly were.
0: I mean, the concept of a holiday was forced on them by regulation and uh, acts of uh, Parliament. But uh, when they did go away. They had this amazing new railway network that they could go anywhere Uh, in Britain. If you look at the map of railways between 1830 and uh, 1890, it's just incredible, the growth. And that meant that the seaside, the British seaside holiday, was born. And British Rail used to advertise the Isle of Man because the only way you could get to the Isle of Man was to come to a pier head in Ardrossan or Fleetwood or Liverpool using the railways and uh, investing in the Isle of Man was a surefire way of making money. There's a a piece in the paper in the 1870s or 1860s saying we've probably got 4,500 visitors here. Well, little did they know that by the Edwardian period we would have 670,000 of them coming in a year. I, I calculate, and that was just through a few months... So there could have been anything like 70,000 people at any one time on the Isle of Man. Well, just
1: think of feeding them, of doing the laundry, of entertaining them. It was an incredible time. Because looking at photos, when you see packed beaches, the ladies especially are extremely
0: well-dressed. They are. Well, of course, in Victorian times, uh, you, you had the full black dresses. I mean, how they suffered in the summer days, I don't know. But even in the 50s, you'd see elderly gentlemen in three-piece suits uh, sitting on deck chairs with a tied handkerchief on their head. Um, and, of course, in the early years, mixed bathing was totally forbidden, uh, and there were bathing vans right up to the 1930s. You were not allowed to have men and women. The only place you could do that... As a family was at Port Jack and there are extraordinary photographs over there of hundreds of people on the railings at the top looking down and seeing men and women together in their bathing costumes. It was quite
1: scandalous. We've now come to the promenade church which when you're coming home on the boat, the illuminated cross on the church adds to the building, but I should imagine from your comments about concrete and cement, not a lover of the Promenade Church.
0: I, I can't say I am. If you see what was there before, it was uh, a Methodist church in cement in the Victorian style. It was built at the same time as the boarding houses. It, it was striking with a spire, and it was exactly in keeping with all this other work. That, unfortunately, to me, to me, sticks out like a sore thumb. The 60s was the time when architects were telling us all that reinforced concrete was the way forward. And we got the Palace Hotel, we got Summerland, and we got the C Terminal, opened in 1965. And that is a brilliant building, but this one I don't think has worn well, and it's got nothing to do with the architecture around about, so it's not my favourite building.
1: OK, so projecting, what would you do with it?
0: Yeah, well, what would you do with it? Uh well nobody's going to do anything with it, they're going to try and keep it waterproof and repaired and you can see all the concrete joins on it and there are, there are stains on it, it doesn't, it doesn't wear well. Go to Santex, be fine. Uh, well yes uh, uh, indeed and that's an interesting point you make because when all these hotels went up in the 1870s they were all grey cement there was no way you could paint an exterior of a building this size because all you had was lime wash now that was fine for Manx cottages or the larger farmhouses but you couldn't be washing these every year. It's only in the 1930s and so on, when the technology of exterior paints became more viable, that they started to paint the first floor, and then gradually they painted them right to the top, uh, because you can leave them up there for some years. I mean, my dad used to have the hydro painted occasionally,
1: and it was a, it's a huge job, a hugely expensive job. As we go further along, we've got paparazzi there. In pink, mm. a bit further on we've got grey mm. and a lighter, sort of paler shade of orange. The colours like that, as you said earlier, they were controlled, but I think they add a sort of not vibrance, but they add something to the to the actually look of the landscape. Yes, what has
0: succeeded there is the variation within a set of rules they're not all cream they're not all white there are as you say pale yellows some of the stucco work at the end has been picked out in red and right at the very end where Rochester uh, apartments are where the old rendezvous used to be it's white and grey and they, they, they look uh, of a type but they've all got individuality and I think that works extremely that adds well. adds
1: to the scenery. Definitely, yeah, definitely. Yeah. After looking at some of the buildings on Douglas Promenade Charles Garden and myself talked about the sunken gardens. Well in 1870s,
0: as I say they reclaimed the land and it was just up to the current roadway with a small pavement but in the 1930s the corporation decided to extend the prom even further and another massive scheme a new seawall was built and all that we're walking on now was infilled and they incorporated the magnificent marine gardens as they were called, we of course call them the sunken gardens and it was a a masterstroke and this wonderful wide walkway we're now on with the pink uh, oblongs and the green squares uh, and of course hundreds of cars (laughs) parking here at the moment but nevertheless it is a superb prom and those gardens are uh, kept up by the Corporation Parks Department Um, There used to be uh, a great fountain here. Uh, I remember it as a boy, there it is. It's got no water coming out of it, but it had wonderful displays and coloured lights at night. And next to it was a boating lake. Now, that's been filled in, and we've got some awful bits of... Ironwork that kids are supposed to play on but the boating lake was magical I used to come as a boy with my little wooden yacht and you had one of those sticks with a two-way hook on the end that you could push and pull and just occasionally the wind would catch your yacht and take it all the way down the boating lake and it was just wonderful kids playing there I suppose health and safety are not allowed to have boating lakes anymore and you're looking at the world through rose colored glasses. <laughs> I <again>. am rather
1: <laughs> I am rather we've now come to Jack's which, at that time, was a hotel. That must have been one of the first hotels.
0: Uh, one of the first hotels, uh, it's no longer named as it was. But, I mean, they all went up in three or four years, including the villas at the far end. And they were just rammed day in, day out. And you can see there, it's uh, called the Granville Hotel. It's still got its original name on. Yeah. And it's got a full stop in cement after the word hotel. I think that's lovely. That's uh, how they did it in Victorian
1: times. But weren't these houses we're looking at bed and breakfast,
0: as compared with a hotel? Uh, Well, they were called boarding houses because you, as the guest, bought the food. Bed and board. Bed and board, and gave it to the landlady, who, who then cooked your egg, or possibly someone else's egg, as I've heard. She didn't always take it very strictly. Um... They did do bed and breakfast, but you could have dinner. But the time I was around, and for many decades before that, they were full board. They were definitely full board. So this was lunch? Lunch. A dinner and and, and breakfast. I mean, I'll tell you later on what we did in the hydro. It was a phenomenal amount of food was stuffed into these people in the days that they were over here. They certainly weren't wanting for catering, I can tell you.
1: Another hotel now, looking back, is the Lock Hotel.
0: Yeah, I mean, what a splendid building that is. It's a double-fronted with wonderful pillars and a balcony with wonderful ironwork above it. And just look at the top. All the finials are still there, all the design over the windows... I mean, they didn't have to do this. They could have just left them uh, plain. But no, it was part of the uh, Victorian way of doing things. Banks were built in the classical style uh, to give imposing uh, feeling and security Hotels on the seafront had this wonderful exuberance. All that decoration along there was done by local craftsmen, uh, most of whom we know nothing about them nowadays, but they did wonderful cement work. Sometimes they uh, pushed in design onto the wet cement, otherwise they put on um, pre-made, pre-cast curves and, and pillars and everything. But even the little rooms right at the top right at the top, which you'd normally think are are out of sight. They've all got their own uh, window tops and pillars. Absolutely beautiful.
1: Was this down to an architect, or was this down to the builder? Well, that's a very good point. There are three people involved
0: in anything. There's the developer, there's the architect, and then there's the builder. And this would have been down to the developer and the architect and the committee that was formed to oversee all of this. It would be they who insisted that this, it was the new street committee, it was called, and they would have been uh, responsible for ensuring that this exuberance was uniform along the front.
1: As we continue wandering along the prom, Tower House is a modern development which actually fits in. It does, actually. um, It's one of the better replacements.
0: It used to be Reese's Snooker Hall, and there was an aquarium in the basement, and, in fact, uh, Manx Radio was there for a few years before we moved up to Douglas Head. But yes, uh, it's, it's made an attempt to certainly keep the rhythm of the, the bays. The height is, is, is OK, and it's got some decorative work on it. So, you know, without too much effort, without too much expense, you can get it right if you're replacing and you are being sympathetic to the history of what's around about you. That's not always happened on the prom, I can tell you. I mean, just look at this hotel before that, um, Marina Hotel, Look at that mansard roof on the top. It's just horrendous. It all looks derelict up there, but um, thank goodness that was not allowed to happen all the way down this terrace. It would have utterly destroyed it.
1: The thing that you mentioned earlier when we were talking about colour schemes, terracotta colour that we've got there, Uh, uh, would that have whipped through the committee? No,
0: I don't think so.
1: (laughs) I'm not sure. Um,
0: I think the last time the proposal of keeping all the hotels the same colour was put forward was the douglas 2000 scheme that does seem to have slipped through it is a deep sort of ochre uh, with cream decoration it works for me uh, as a one-off i mean but uh, it it certainly isn't in keeping
1: with the rest must be easy to say to them well just look for the terracotta building Absolutely, yes, I mean it does
0: stand out, yes
1: And next to it, again, so
0: many amazing variations on the the boarding house theme To the left of it is a big double-fronted hotel Which is the Halvard, Hotel Halvard Beautiful columns with uh, decorated tops, pillars at the front Double bay
1: windows, I mean, it's an absolute masterpiece. The new building next door, as you said, what was that Greensill's Cafe? Or something?
0: Uh, it's actually the Rendezvous Cafe uh, wow. in the 60s and 70s, a very trendy place. Uh, that's all been demolished and replaced by a building that you know, is a credit. I think you can, again, do the right thing. The rhythms are right, the height is right, the decoration is right and it, it fits in perfectly and, and why balconies. shouldn't you do that you know balconies why it, look the like. balconies yeah exactly they've got slightly ornate ironwork and obviously double doors you can uh, from your apartment sit on the balcony and um, watch
1: the prom being resurfaced below talking of hotels as we sweep now we are looking at the Sefton hotel mm. which must have been a big investment for
0: somebody a huge investment and Obviously, the finest facade on the prom, it's, it's absolutely enormous. You can still see something that people don't realise. At either end, below the turrets, on the ground, there are large arches which are now filled in by bars and rooms. That's where the coaches went in. So once you got onto your pony and trap at the sea terminal with your luggage, it would sweep in there round the back of the hotel where you were uh, attended by porters and so on, and then it would come out the other side. And that was that was one of its features, but I mean it is a magnificent building, definitely
1: unique I imagine to the island because because of the the sort of the width of the building and the way it 's been designed with the two turrets at either end to actually say i 'm um, a building oh absolutely, it was a statement
0: of Opulence, really, because most of the people staying in these boarding houses and in the hundreds of other small boarding houses around the town, which we're not even touching on, there were apparently about 1,800 boarding houses in Douglas at the peak season. The Sefton was quite different because it was opulence and obviously you paid more and you got luxury in terms of uh, late Victorian times anyway.
1: Once again, the Sefton Group have invested... And, and built on the back of it and things like that to make it, I, I suppose, dare we call it a corporate hotel? Well,
0: I, I don't know about that, but what they have done is the big glass atrium, which they did, and if you look at that from, say, Douglas Head or anywhere, you'll find the atrium is exactly the same size and shape as St Thomas's Church. I don't know if you've noticed that, no. but they actually echo each other, which is rather nice, and it shows that you can extend one of these old boarding houses uh, in a modern way that is sympathetic, out the back. With a little bit
1: of thought. Absolutely. Yeah, Of course, we've got next door to the Sefton, one of your joys, the island, yep, the Gaiety Theatre. Indeed, built in, uh, or opened in 1900.
0: Uh, Frank Matcham, of course, the great theatre designer, and a local builder, Alexander Gill who we'll speak about later, but he was one of the great investors and boarding house owners. He uh, was partly responsible for the building of that. There was a pavilion there before which didn't do very good business, and the big investment was the, the theatre, which, of course, is one of the jewels in the crown of the Isle of Man. It was to be demolished. The demolition order was signed, as you may know, by the Palace and Derby Castle Company because failing tourism, the summer season with the Stella Hartley variety show was not bringing in the punters you know bless her she was trying her best but uh, it just wasn't paying and Sir Dudley Cunliffe Owen or Cuddly Dudley as he was known the chairman of the company wanted it demolished the uh, secretary of the company refused to sign the demolition order that Friday alerted the government who then went into negotiations and bought it thank goodness
1: thank goodness yeah as good on the inside as it is on the outside?
0: Oh, absolutely, yes. Probably that, even
1: better. Yeah,
0: well, the inside is just incredible. I've been into a number of Matcham theatres in London, huge theatres. They're not a patch on the Gaiety, English National Opera in the Coliseum there, just round the corner from the National Gallery, one of Matcham's masterpieces. But, I mean, it's twice the size of this, but it's not a patch, in my opinion, on the decor in here. It's just fabulous
1: we've spoken earlier in this bob into buildings programs we spoke to the architects ellis brown about the works that they did between the gaiety and the villa marina ian brown of ellis brown was one
0: of the island's great architects he was a great character but my goodness what a genius he was ellis brown had the job when the government after a very bitter row with the corporation bought the Villa Marina, they had the job of totally refurbishing it and extending it, and I think they've done it brilliantly, absolutely superbly, and you can see today the new entrance in the grounds, uh, how superb it is. They, Ian being the sort of person he was... He did a redrawing of all the traffic flow and a huge car park hidden in the grounds. It's just a great pity that the government fell short of that. They didn't uh, do that. So now we don't have any parking for the Villa Marina. You've got to park up in Derby Square. And if you're playing the double bass in the Isle of Man Symphony Orchestra, you've got to carry that down from Derby Square. I mean, it's a pity they just didn't go the whole hog and complete the whole scheme. There just is not enough parking when that place is full at night. And it's no good saying you use the car park at Jester Street
1: and walk down the back lane. I mean, that's no way to deal with it. Continuing the walk along the prom, we have now just passing the Gaiety Theatre, the colonnade walkway that we spoke about. The good thing about it is that you get that lump of greenery just above the colonnade. You do. We're actually walking on the first promenade
0: in the 1860s uh, developed from public subscription by the High Bailiff, Samuel Harris, who was a a big figure in the island, and they named it the Harris Prom after him. Uh, It wasn't quite as wide as this, of course. Before that, it was called Colonel's Walk, and where the uh, colonnade is now, there was a high wall, behind which was Marina Lodge, which was a wonderful Regency house, Uh, and all the grounds of the villa were the private grounds of that, right up to Derby Square... And there was orchards and um, stables and laundries also. It was a very self-contained building, owned eventually by Henry Bloom Noble. It was the residence of the governor for a while, and eventually that was demolished. And in 1913, the new, as we call it, Villa Marina was opened. But it was called the Kursaal, K-U-R-S-A-A-L, because German bands and everything about Germany was very trendy up until the outbreak of the First World War and then the name Kersel was dropped immediately even the Royal Family changed their name to the House of Windsor And it was uh, then called the Villa Marina, a central part of the island's entertainment ever since.
1: Tonight on Bob Into Buildings, Charles Gard and myself have been taking a look at the buildings on Douglas Prom. We will continue this walk later in this series. You can listen again to this programme and also previous programmes in the first series as podcasts on MaxRadio.com. I'll be back next week at the same time to focus on another of the island's iconic buildings. Mark Tiley with Greatest Hits is next. So from me, Bob Harrison... Good evening.